My sermon text this morning is Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, even as we have enjoyed another hour of rest uh, this past evening, we thank you that this is a place of rest. Certainly we have come with words upon our lips, prayers to offer you, praises to honor you with, but we thank you that you also speak to us. And so while this is a service to you, the worship that's due your name, we also recognize that this is your service to us. And as we sit and listen, we are fed from your hand. Father, we are your sheep, and you are our good shepherd. So we ask once again to lead us into good pasture and feed us richly. This we pray for the name and sake of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In terms of popular music, there is probably no song that is more recognizable and singable, and maybe some would argue inspirational, as John Lennon's Imagine. That is a song with some staying power, right? It was written over 50 years ago, 1971, the year after the Beatles broke up. Still played on the radio everywhere. It's a song that's cherished by millions worldwide. The song is popular probably for its simplicity and its tune. As I mentioned, it's very singable but probably even more so for its message, for its vision that it casts. Lennon, John Lennon, who was with the Beatles, he wants us to imagine a vision, a shared vision, he hopes, for humanity. And this is his vision. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine there's no countries. It's not hard to do nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. And then that very memorable chorus, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. It's actually hard to recite these words, isn't it, without breaking into song. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to break into song. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Well, if I've got that stuck now in your minds, it's been stuck in my mind all week, so. It is a nice picture, isn't it? 
And I don't mean that facetiously. Who wouldn't want that? Well, apparently God did not want it, at least as it was displayed here in Genesis 11. I say that because this morning we read what seemed like a vision for humanity that was pretty much in line with what Lenin imagined, and yet God seemed to counteract it at every turn. Do you notice the structure of the narrative? Man seeks something, and then at each turn God counters his desires and frustrates his efforts. What is up with that? You know, this morning, let me just encourage you to try and read this passage and digest it through the lens of someone who doesn't acknowledge God's gracious sovereignty in the affairs of mankind. For that kind of person, I think you'd have to admit that this is a bit perplexing, isn't it? I mean, what is it that's so wrong with what man wants? He wants unity. He wants one people sharing the same language, sticking together so that they don't become fractured. He wants to build something beautiful and impressive, a city in which to dwell. Is that so wrong? And think about it. There is no awful sin that's recorded here. I mean, there's no pagan idolatry spoken of. There's no depraved sexual immorality. There's no violence or murder. So what's the problem? Well, the problem in a word is humanism. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Man has a vision for humanity, but God counters with a vision of his own. And what I hope we're going to see this morning is that God's vision for humanity, while counterintuitive maybe, it's actually more gracious and more glorious than anything that we could accomplish on our own. God has a counterintuitive vision for humanity. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Following the structure of this narrative, we're going to contrast man's vision versus God's vision. And I have three simple points. I'll give them to you now all at once. First is that man sought a place to settle. He sought a place to congregate, but God scattered him. Second, man sought to build a name for himself and a nation for himself, but God confused man. And finally, man sought to ascend to heaven, but God came down. Let's look at each of those in turn. First, then, is that man sought a place to congregate. Verses 1 and 2, they simply say, Now the whole earth had one language, the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Okay, that makes sense, right? The whole earth had one language. After the flood, we know that there are three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who all presumably spoke the same language. Now, God had said to those sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and so their descendants did begin to populate and migrate. In fact, Genesis 10 gives us a list of 70 nations that descend from those lines of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which eventually spread out over the face of the whole earth and filled the continents of Europe and Africa and Asia. I say eventually, but maybe not right away. In fact, and this is really significant, it's worth noting that this account of the Tower of Babel, it doesn't chronologically follow Genesis 10. See, Genesis 11 takes place 
during Genesis 10. And we can deduce that from a couple of verses in chapter 10. First of all, in verse 8 of chapter 10, if you have a Bible with you, you might want to take a look at that. In, chapter, in verse 8 of chapter 10, it says, Cush, Cush, who's the son of Ham, he fathered Nimrod. And then further down in verse 10, it says that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Babel in the land of Shinar. Verse 11 also says that from that land he went into Assyria and he also built Nineveh. So Nimrod was pretty prolific, right? He built two of the most notorious cities in history, Babel and Nineveh. And then also in verse 25, it says that Shem's great-grandson, so we were following Ham's line, now we're following Shem's line, his great-grandson Eber had two sons, one of whom was named Peleg. And Peleg means division, for it says, for in his days the earth was divided. Now, most scholars think that that's a reference to the dispersion that took place at Babel, and that would make sense in terms of timing. I mean, if Nimrod is the grandson of Ham, he would have had time to found Babel, get that project underway. And then two generations later, the earth was divided, right? Man was scattered because God came down and frustrated his efforts. So man, under Nimrod's leadership, he sought a place to congregate in the plains of Shinar. And you know, if we read Genesis 10, verse 25 at face value, I think it would seem to suggest that even though Nimrod was from Ham's line, families descended from other lines, specifically Shem's line, were also part of this endeavor to found and build the city of Babel. The reason I say that is that once again, Peleg, whose name means division, right? The peoples were divided, is of the line of Shem. Why would Peleg be mentioned if he was just in Ham's line that migrated to the east and settled in the plains of Shinar? If the line of Shem has already dispersed to other regions, why would Peleg be named Peleg at all? My point is this. I think we're seeing history repeat itself. Remember a few weeks ago that I had suggested that the line of Cain may have overwhelmed the line of Seth. Cain's line is detailed for us in Genesis 4 and Seth's line in Genesis 5. So if Genesis 6 is talking about the line of Cain intermarrying with the line of Seth, the result was what? That every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. It was a tragic failure on man's part. But that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman was supposed to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, but instead, what do we witness? We see the seed of the serpent swallowing up the seed of the woman in Genesis 4 through 6. And I would submit to you that that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the same thing take place once again. Genesis 10 gives us a table of 70 nations, the genealogy of three sons, now instead of two. And according to God's design, they were supposed to spread out and fill the earth. But Shem, who was commended and blessed by God for honoring his father and his mother, his line is now being threatened by the line of Ham, with whom God was not pleased. Remember that God had blessed the line of Shem, and he told Japheth that he would find blessing within the tents of Shem, but Shem wasn't to find blessing within the tents of Ham. 
No, Ham proved to be wicked, and so God cursed at least a portion of his progeny. My point is this, God does not call all of humanity to congregate in the same place. Instead, God calls his people to holiness. Now, obviously, holiness is a moral distinction. But I also think in some sense, and we can't really escape this, it's a spatial one as well. When God calls his people to holiness, he means to what? Set them apart. Separate them. He means for us to come out from among them. Now, in preparation for entering the land of Canaan, God told his people, you shall not intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will do what? They'll turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Likewise, in the New Testament, we're encouraged not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? None is the answer. And it's in that very context that Paul, quoting Isaiah 52, exhorts us with these words, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Now look, I want to be clear about something. I'm in no way promoting some kind of ugly kinism, right? We're not to take pride in our ethnicity or focus on whether we're descended from this line or that line, Shem, Ham, Japheth, whatever. The reason for that is that in Christ there is no distinction, right? There's no circumcision or uncircumcision. There's no Jew or Gentile. But we have to recognize that humanistic man seeks to place seeks a place to congregate because the humanist has faith in a brotherhood of man, right? Imagine all the people sharing all the world. But that is only possible if there is no distinction, which cannot be the case for the Christian. Christians are called to be set apart. Christians are not called to assimilate into the culture that surrounds them. You know, one of the great values that we uphold in our church, among us as Christians, is a distinctly Christian education for our children. For some, that means sending their children to a Christian school. For others, that might mean homeschooling. By the way, I want to be very careful here as well. I am not saying that a public school education is sinful, right? At the very least, anyone who takes that kind of hard line should probably have nothing to do with state or community colleges as well. I used to serve as a campus minister at a state university. I was also a dean of a college, a Christian college for many years. And I can testify to the fact that those years are just as important as the younger years because that's when Christians are often radicalized and ruined in their faith. But whatever the case, we recognize that our children are sacred and their education is sacred and there is no such thing as neutral, neutrality in, edu in education. Man sought out a place to congregate. But in counterintuitive fashion to man's vision, God determined to do what? To scatter him over the face of the earth. And friends, that was grace. That was grace at work. It was an act of mercy because God was not going to allow his people to become indistinguishable, assimilated, or completely lost. 
That was God saving man from his own destruction. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. All right, well, man sought to congregate, but God scattered him. Then also man sought to construct something for himself, didn't he? A tower, yes, but also a great name and a nation, a city-state for his glory. We see this clearly in verse 4. Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's make a great name for ourselves. Now, concerning the tower itself, this is probably what they call a ziggurat, right? It's like a pyramid, but with a staircase that leads to various levels, tabletops, if you will, with a temple shrine that's situated on the top. If you've ever traveled to uh, Chichen Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula or Tenochtitlan near Mexico City, you know what I'm talking about. Those are preserved ziggurats in Mesoamerica. Anyway, this is an impressive structure in its state. It would have carried religious significance. It's not just a building. And our text, verse 2, says that they substituted thoroughly baked bricks for stone, and they used bitumen, that is like tar, for mortar. And I think that what that's emphasizing to us <clears throat> is the fact that these men, they employed the very latest technological advances in building this structure. <clears throat> Man is proud of his achievements, isn't he? of his technological advancements. Listen, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and tell you that technology is bad. I don't think that the Lord calls us to be Luddites that resist efficiencies and technologies. But our theology should inform, first of all, our technological pursuits. But even more importantly, I think our theology should inform our faith in technology itself, our faith in progress, which is, of course, what technology promises. I'm sure many of you have read Neil Postman. You heard of that name, right? He wrote a, an excellent short book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I'm sure many of you have read that. I think he actually wrote a better book called Technopoly, which I commend to you if you haven't picked up a copy of that. Technopoly is the name of it. In that book, he challenges the assumptions that technology always makes things better. And he asserts that, no, technology changes the game but it doesn't always make things better. He gives many examples that show how it changes things, but doesn't necessarily make them better. I'll just offer the one, the one that he leads with in the book, writing, writing. Now, most of us are not accustomed to think of, thinking of writing as a technology, though I think all of us would admit that today technology has influenced writing and it's made it more commonplace, right? I mean. Nearly all of us are high-volume writers. We all write more than people did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, certainly more than people did 2,000 years ago. We write emails back and forth constantly. Some of us depend on that, right, to do our work. We're constantly texting from our phones. We're posting things on social media. I even wrote this sermon out, right? It was a breeze. The written word is everywhere, and that's, made it, that's been made possible by our technologies. But what's been all the trade-off of this self-expression and this glut of writing? Well, for one thing, it's led to the rise of every person, right? Everyone's opinion must be heard. Everyone is important. 
People feel the constant need now to express themselves, but honestly, that's made most of what's said trivial and in insignificant. I think many Christians have realized this, which is why a lot of people now are just dropping social media, right? What difference does it make? But then also, consider how our memory, this is one of Postman's points, consider how our memory is not being exercised by writing everything down. How is it, for instance, that the disciples of Jesus wrote down the things that Jesus did and said 10 years, 20 years, 30 years after Jesus was ascended? Isn't it because they didn't take notes? I mean, men of that day, they would memorize the sayings and the teachings of their rabbi, which is exactly what the disciples did. Their memories were much better than my memory. I have the words of Jesus in writing, right? I, I have their testimony, and I can barely remember my Lord's teaching. My point is this. I think we've grown accustomed to uncritically believe in progress. We've become conditioned to think that we're making progress through our scientific and technological innovations. Look at what we can do now. That's amazing. A ziggurat, that doesn't even compare to a, a building today, not, certainly not a, a skyscraper. You don't want to regress to the Stone Age or the Brick Age, right? Come a long way. We can go to the moon now. Man has made tons of progress, right? Now, to be fair, this is a very complex is issue, even theologically, because we believe that man has given us a man, or that God has given us a mandate to not only fill the earth but subdue it. Right? We're called to exercise dominion in this world, so that would suggest that human technological innovation is a good thing. And I do want to uphold our technological advance, advancements as such. But because we're sinful, every technological advance, and by the way, consider how even that phrase, technological advance, expresses faith and progress, right? But every technological advance is a double-edged sword which cuts both ways. There is something gained and there is something lost. But the spirit of humanism doesn't see this. So it ex expresses faith in human progress. You know, if you have a chance sometime, uh, Google and read the humanist, the original humanist manifesto. It was created about 90 years ago. It unapologetically states that religion, with its outdated doctrines, has lost its significance. It's powerless to solve humanity's problems today. Today, they say man's larger understanding of the universe, his scientific achievements, and his deeper appreciation of brotherhood have created the need for a new statement and new purposes for religion. They want good without God. By the way, look at the signers of that document, and you'll see that it's just littered with ministers. And that probably shouldn't surprise us because humanism is a religion. It's a rival religion. At Babel, man built a ziggurat, a tower with a shrine on top, but it's no shrine to God. Instead, it's a shrine to man's achievements. At Babel, man is God. Let's build ourselves a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. Of course, humanism markets this 
as good because it's all done in the name and for the sake of community. Man cloaks his atheism, his godlessness in a new religion that seeks the peace and welfare of mankind. A brotherhood of man then becomes the greatest good. So then is God just a curmudgeon? Does he just not like that vision? I mean, does he just not want to see man be happy or get along with one another? Maybe the Christian God is just jealous for man to acknowledge him. He doesn't want man to get along without him. Does he just want the glory? Is that why God crashed this party, confused their language, and frustrated their efforts? Based on verse 6, some might conclude that, right? It says, the Lord said, behold, they're one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. So isn't that just evidence that God is a sour killjoy regarding man's wonderful accomplishments? Actually, God had said something similar a few chapters back. Remember that when we considered the account of the fall, right, after Adam and Eve had sinned against God as they were being banished from the garden, God had said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. The man has become like one of us. That sounds very similar to nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. And God went on to say in the garden, he must not be allowed to also take of the tree of life and live forever. And so God drove him out of the garden. He put a flaming cherubim at the entrance to guard the way back to the tree of life. Remember what that was? Was that judgment? That was grace. Once again, that was grace because if man now eats from the tree of life, he will live forever in a state of sin. Likewise, it's a grace that God confuses man here at Babel. It's grace when he frustrates man's powerful abilities to glorify himself and worship himself. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Man sought to congregate. God scattered him. Man sought to build his name, but God confused him. And then finally, man sought to ascend to the heavens. But God came down. I'll be very brief at this point. It's interesting, isn't it, that even though humanistic man has an earthly vision that desperately wants to exclude God, he often does what? He, he reaches up to the heavens for immortality. Humanistic man wants to be God says that the people of Babel sought to build a city and tower with its top in the heavens because they were trying to usurp the place of God. You know, this is the ancient lie that the serpent told our first parents, which he's been telling people ever since, all across the world. You won't die. You can have immortality. God knows that when you eat what's forbidden, your eyes will be open. You will be enlightened, and you will be like God. Friends, do you know that our faith does not inform us that we need to become like God? That's not our place. We don't need to ascend to the heavens. 
We don't have a righteousness of our own that would allow us to ascend to the heavens. No, always and in every place, God condescends to sinful man. God came down to see the city and tower that man had built, just as God came down to the garden to look for sinful Adam. Where are you? He called out. He came down just as he dwelt, as he tabernacled with his people when he gave them the law, just as he came down to us in the person of Jesus. God always comes down. Man seeks to ascend to the heavens to be like God, but a gracious God condescends to sinful man, and that is our counterintuitive gospel. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. God's way is not our way. You know, God's way is better than our way. You know, people read this account as if it were simply an act of judgment, but it's actually, I believe, a counterintuitive act of intervention, an act of salvation on God's part. I think we see this more clearly as we press on in the book of Genesis. Yes, here in Genesis 11, we saw that God dispersed man from a place where he sought to congregate. But then in the very next chapter of Genesis, what are we going to see? Don't we see God calling a man, Abram, out of the world to a place that he's prepared for him? He says, go from your country to the land that I will show you. I will settle you. God also confused man's languages and frustrated his effort to construct a great name and a great nation for himself. But what did he then promise Abram in the very next chapter, Genesis 12? I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. Even more than that, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, God does indeed have his own cosmic, if not counterintuitive plan to bless all of humanity. And here in Genesis 11, man sought to ascend to the heavens. But in Genesis 12, God simply brought the blessing of heaven to earth. God appeared to Abram. He condescended to him in order to bless him. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And of course, ultimately, God's counterintuitive vision for humanity involves a city. He's building a city that once again comes down, comes down out of heaven from God, and the kings of the earth, they will bring their glory into this city, and the only name and the only fame that will matter is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his praise will be upon our lips. There'll be no confusion. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. That is his plan and our satisfaction. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your counterintuitive vision for us. We pray that we would adopt it, that we would, not res that we would in fact, resist the temptations to build unity around any other name other than Christ. We pray that we would not trust in our own abilities and achievements as something that equips us to ascend to the heavens, for we thank you that you have come down. May we always recognize that we are sinners saved by grace because you have met us and condescended to us in Christ Jesus. So help us to cling to him. Hear our prayer and grant us mercy for the sake of your dear son. Amen.